The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Daniel. The book of of Daniel. We're back in Daniel again, and we're grateful uh, for that. We're in Daniel chapter 11, and uh, we're returning to uh, a vision that begins in chapter 10 and goes all the way through chapter 12. This is the the fourth of uh, four visions that Daniel's received. He received a vision in chapter 7 chapter 8, chapter 9, and then chapter 10 through 12 received another vision. And the vision that we have in Daniel chapters 10 through 12 is the last of the four visions. It's the longest of the four visions. It's the most detailed and the most complete of the four visions. And as we saw last time, the the level of detail that we find in this chapter is absolutely incredible. This prophecy is so clear. It's so specific that the only way for unbelieving critics to maintain their unbelief is to consider this section of scripture a forgery that was written after the fact. It's that specific, it's that clear, and it's that devastating to the natural mind. We have the details about people, about places, about events that you just wouldn't be able to predict without divine foreknowledge. There are family feuds, betrayals, plot twists that you'd never be able to arrive at with just guesswork. In fact, there's such widespread agreement on the accuracy of these details that not even the unbelievers question the history. They just deny that Daniel really wrote it when he wrote it. Because to admit that Daniel wrote this before it happened is to admit that there's a God who controls history. As Isaiah 46 and verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. But we mentioned last time that we were together that it's important to keep in mind that the point of Daniel chapter 11 is not simply to tell us that God knows the future. That's true and that's glorious, but Daniel had a specific burden on his heart that this prophecy was meant to address. He had been fasting for three straight weeks because he carried a heavy burden on his heart for the people of God. Because even though a a number of the people of God returned to Jerusalem during this time, the sanctuary was still desolate. The people of God were still a reproach among the nations. The temple was still a pile of rocks. The city was buried underneath the rubble. And the people who did return were discouraged, frustrated, and persecuted. And many more remained in Babylon completely uninterested in the work of God. They were making a comfortable home in Babylon. Sounds a lot like the church today, making a comfortable home in Babylon. And through tears and through fasting, Daniel's question was, what will become of these your people? That's his question. What is going to become of these your people? And that's what this prophecy is meant to address. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 14, the angel says, now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people. This is what this prophecy is about. And I've heard preachers who have said that this prophecy has little or nothing to do with Israel. And you scratch your head because that's not what the angel said. The angel said it is about the people. It was about the people. 
This prophecy was given in direct response to Daniel's prayer for his people. And this was a word for discouraged, frightened, and frustrated people of God. And what they needed was a word from God. And I know we have people here today who may carry a similar burden in their hearts. Because we have a burden for the people of God, don't we? We should. (laughs) We have a burden for the church. And honestly, the spiritual landscape is not that encouraging. I recently saw an article that read churches are closing at rapid numbers in the U.S., researchers say, as congregations dwindle across the country and a younger generation of Americans abandon Christianity altogether. They, they, they've called themselves the ex-evangelicals. They continue to say that since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religion, religious identity as atheistic, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And about a, about a quarter of the young adults who dropped out of church said that they disagreed with their church's stance on political and social issues. The younger generation just doesn't feel like they're being accepted in the church environment or some of their choices aren't being accepted by those at church. And if you want to be faithful to Scripture, you can't rewrite the Scripture to accept people. The Bible won't stretch to accommodate your views that are outside of the Bible, foreign to Scripture, And we have to hold the line and love while still uh, affirming that what Scripture says is true. We can't love and affirm what the people say is true. We have to love and affirm what Scripture says is true. There's also confusion and disarray even among those who would affirm that the Bible is the Word of God. That's discouraging. I've personally never experienced such a divisive time in my years as a Christian. And of course, there's always been the theological debates among believers, but nothing like what I've seen in recent days. Even among those that would affirm the Bible and affirm the gospel, it seems like the people of God are still a reproach among the nations, and it can be discouraging to see the the dirty laundry of the church aired out on Twitter and YouTube and social media all across the internet. One pastor observed many pastors find more in common with even unbelievers who share their political and cultural assumptions than with believers who affirm the same doctrine. And then we have those who are completely uninterested in the work of the church, totally uninvolved with the work of God. There are those who call themselves the people of God, but they've become so comfortable in this modern-day Babylon that they have no interest in the things of God anymore. They're like Lot trying to make a name for themselves back in Sodom. They don't want to stick out as being different. They just want to blend in. We have a lot of Christians that are tired of being hated. But as Jesus says in John 15 and 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's our association with Jesus Christ that makes us odious to the world around us, right? But there's some people that are tired of being odious. I I don't... I don't want to be on the outside looking in anymore. I want to be on the inside looking in. I don't want to be on the outside anymore. I'm uncomfortable with getting involved in the work of God because it puts me on the outside. And so-called believers are dropping like flies to the culture. And then on top of the, that, the influence in this world is given over to the rich, the powerful, the schemers, the wicked. And sometimes people wonder, where is the influence of the righteous? Where, where's the influence of the righteous? What? What's going to become of the righteous? Are we always going to be the the bottom of the barrel? 
What's going to become of our families, of our children, our grandchildren as the, the powers of the world exert their sinful dominance? Haven't the kingdoms of the world been under the rule of wickedness long enough? Is this all that the people of God have to look forward to? Does this train eventually stop somewhere and we get a new conductor? <laughs> what are the righteous supposed to do in the meantime? And that's what the prophecy of Daniel is meant to address. Discouraged, frightened, frustrated people who are being trampled on by the world. And many of you might have come in here and that's your story. I just feel powerless, trampled on, defeated, whether it's at home, at work, at school, in the world around me. And on the surface, it seems like the race is given to the swift and the battle to the strong. But behind the scenes, there is a God who is in absolute control over everything. Amen? He's orchestrating all things to fulfill his intended design. And the kingdom will not go over to the swift and the strong, but to the righteous who belong to God. So let's take a look at our text again, Daniel chapter 11. I'll start at verse 2. Daniel chapter 11, starting at verse 2. Daniel says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Why don't you bow your head with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, we're just grateful for your word. An ancient word that's applicable and just as relevant to every generation. Uh, So Father, we do thank you for this word. Now, Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your truth. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, open up to us this word, that you would show us wonderful things as we look into your your word. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this chapter of Daniel, there's a few clear divisions in the text. Now, first of all, in verse 2, it speaks about Israel under Medo-Persian control. And what is highlighted is this fourth king, uh, who we identified last time we were together as the uh, Hashuerus, the uh, king of Persia, who became strong through his riches. That's what it says in verse 2. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And that king was uh, King Ahasuerus of uh, Persia, who became strong through his riches. But he was not able to retain his empire through his riches. And the lesson that we learned there is that the kingdom is not given over to the rich. And if Israel was tempted to think that the path to freedom and security was through gaining wealth, Ahasuerus, the rich king, was their sign. That's your warning sign. The kingdom will not be given over to the rich. In uh, Job 31, 24, if I've put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because of my wealth and because my hand had secured so much, Verse 28 says, that too would have been an iniquity, calling for judgment, for I would have denied the God above. We do not trust in our riches. And Ahasuerus was a clear illustration of that. The kingdom's not given over to the rich, and neither is the kingdom given over to the powerful. Verses 3 to 4, it lets us know about a mighty king. Verse 3 says, a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And that king was Alexander the Great, who by the age of... 30, had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, conquered the entire known world in only 10 years. Alexander's army never lost a battle. He's still considered one of history's most successful military geniuses. But as powerful as Alexander was, he could not even protect his own family. Not even one of his descendants would succeed him on the throne. 
After Alexander died, his half-brother was murdered. His son, Alexander, was murdered. His other son, Hercules, was murdered. His kingdom was split between four of his generals and went out to the four points of the compass and not one of these parts went to any of his own descendants. Conquered the world, the entire world, but was unable to save his own family from destruction. His kingdom would not retain its power and even his wife, Roxana, was murdered. People imagine that they're protected by amassing great power, you know, power and uh, securities and the power that I can amass to myself. But Alexander is a reminder that with great power does not come great security. Jeremiah 9, 23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. The kingdom is not given over to the rich or to the powerful, and it's also not given over to the schemers. In verses 5 through 20, we're introduced to this third division in the text, and uh, the Greek kingdom was split in these four pieces, four divisions, north and south, east and west, and the Seleucid Empire was in the north, the Ptolemaic Empire was in the south, and a small stretch of highway that connected the two was Israel in the middle. And Israel was the collateral damage as these superpowers duked it out. And these power struggles began to emerge and deceitful schemes between the north and the south. And that's the primary thing that's described here in uh, verses 5 to 20. And one of the things that sticks out here, we mentioned this last time, is the, the peace treaty that was made between the north and the south when Antiochus III gave up his 10 year old daughter, Cleopatra I, to be married to an Egyptian king in the south. But not even that worked out. We looked at verse 17. It says, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. She turned against her own father. Rather than turning to her father, she turned to her husband, fell in love with her Egyptian husband, and would not take a stand for her father or be on his side. We know about Cleopatra on the, in the line of Egypt, not in Greece, in the north in Syria, because it all backfired. You know, that's why Cleopatra is associated with, with Egypt. It was a powerful reminder to us that we will not succeed if our confidence is in the arm of the flesh. We can't trust in our schemes to get us out on top. It turned out in disaster. You know, sometimes we think that if we get it all figured out, you know, somehow it'll work out for us. But, but what we're taught here is that the kingdom doesn't go over to those that are the schemers. And in the middle of all this, like I said, you have Israel just caught in the middle, trampled over by the rich, the powerful, the schemers, and just when you think that things couldn't get any worse, verse 21 hits you. Look at verse 21. It says, in his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is the, the fourth division of the text, where we move from the deceitful schemers to a particular person of wickedness. This one who's the despicable person and the, the kingdom also will not be given over to the wicked, but for a period of time it will be decimated by the wicked. The kingdom is not given to the wicked. Back in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prayed, O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins, the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, have become a reproach to all those around us. And that prayer was answered in part when the people of God returned to their city, but it didn't take long for these people to be right back underneath the oppression of the wicked 
And this is what we find in verse 21, that they're right back underneath the wicked. And there was no greater oppression in ancient times for Israel than the persecution uh, that came by the despicable character known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The despicable, and that's the right word for him, the despicable. He was a wicked man. Antiochus IV is more popularly known by the title that he gave to himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which is uh, Antiochus God Manifest. He thought he was a manifestation of God. He actually put the inscription Theos Epiphanes on uh, the coins that were minted and passed those around, you know, just in case you forgot who he thought he was. And many people secretly called him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant Antiochus the madman rather than the expression of God. He took the title of deity that didn't belong to him. He also took the honor of kingship that didn't belong to him. Antiochus IV was never supposed to be a king. After Antiochus III died, the kingdom should have passed down to his eldest son, which it did. But then after his son was assassinated, Seleucus, it should have passed down to his son. But instead of it passing down to the line that it should have passed to, Antiochus IV came in and stole the kingdom for himself, managed to take control of the kingdom for himself. So he was a usurper of the throne. His brother Seleucus had a son that should have been next in line, and actually he had another brother that should have been next before Antiochus. But while the older brother was a hostage in Rome, Antiochus seized the opportunity for himself. He was a despicable man. Took the kingdom in what the text calls intrigue or flatteries, points to him being a cunning, savvy individual. He shook what hands he needed to shake to get himself into his position. And immediately he began to secure and expand his empire. Look at verse 22. It says, The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. What's that talking about? It's saying that uh, in reference to the Egyptian armies, that they were flooded by Antiochus. And uh, nobody could hold them back. That's what it's talking about. There's uh, this overflowing of the, the forces of Antiochus and also the prince of the covenant. What's that talking about? The prince of the covenant was a reference to the high priest in Judah, a man named Onias III, who was a faithful high priest in Judah, who was eventually murdered by Antiochus. He allowed nobody to stand in his way. He not only desired to advance in Egypt, he desired to bring Greek culture into Jerusalem, and even the champion of the covenant, the prince of the covenant, the high priest, was put out of the way so Antiochus could have his way. And in many ways, Antiochus was the embodiment of all the kings that came before him. He was a schemer. He, he didn't gain the, throne by, uh, he gained the throne by scheming, but he also gained power by scheming. Look at verse 23. It says, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. And we don't have specific information about what this deception looked like, but we do know who this deception was towards. He, he made deals with Egypt, and then he broke the deals with Egypt. Actually, later down in verse 27, it talks about how he and the king of Egypt got together. Verse 27 says this, for both kings, their hearts would be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. And this is what Antiochus did. He would sit at the table, you know, make lies, and then he'd break his promises. And this is where the scheming gets even more interesting. Uh, if you uh, remember Antiochus III, who's Antiochus IV father, remember he's the one who gave his daughter to Egypt to marry the king of Egypt. So who is 
Antiochus actually scheming against? He's scheming against the son of his sister, which is his nephew. So here you have Antiochus the fourth nephew in Egypt, and he's sitting at the table scheming and conniving to get control over his empire. This is, this is like a family feud if you've ever seen one, right? Here he is scheming against his own nephew to steal his kingdom. Verse 23 says, After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So Antiochus was not only a schemer, he was also powerful. He was a, a person who with a small force of people was able to go up against greater numbers of people. So he was successful in battle with a small force, similar to Alexander the Great, who with a small army was able to take over armies that were much larger. If you remember in the Battle of uh, Granicus, the Granicus River, Alexander's forces were only 35,000 men, and he was able to overcome a troop of 100,000 men. He was able to take over troops of much larger size, and Antiochus was able to do some of the same thing. With a small force, he's able to win these victories. So he was a schemer, he was powerful, and he was also rich. Look at verse 24. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. If you remember, Ahasuerus was the, the rich king, and here you have Antiochus, who also grows in wealth, but it only works for a period of time. It's also short-lived, isn't it? So short-lived. Do you know that even if you were able to gain influence, power, riches, that it would still only last you for a short time? <laughs> you, know, you amass all that this world has to give you, but it's still only going to last for a short time. We're going to see that that's going to be true for Antiochus, but it will eventually end for everybody at some point, right? And that's why we're not to be envious of the wicked. It's all coming down. Eventually, it will all fall down. Just for a moment, flip back to Psalm 73. We read this text last week for our psalm reading. Psalm 73, just want to remind you about a couple things back here. In Psalm 73, it's a psalm written by Asaph, according to 1 Chronicles 15. Asaph was a professional worship leader in Israel, a Levitical singer. He was appointed as a chief minister before the ark of the Lord by King David. And Asaph struggled when he saw the wicked prospering. Look at verse, verse 1 of Psalm 73. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw the, the wicked seeming like they're getting away with it. It seems like they're able to do all that their heart desires. Like, Lord, when does this stop? In verse 3, they're the arrogant. They're the boasters. In verse 6, pride is their necklace. They flaunt it. In verse 8, they mock. They speak from on high. In verse 9, they even go a, a step further. They set their mouths against heaven. And that's what Antiochus was doing. You know, I'm God manifest. He's setting his mouth against heaven, and you're going to let him get away with it? So even God and his dwelling place are not out of reach for these people. Down in verse 11, it says, they, stay, they say to themselves, how does God know and is there knowledge with the Most High? Basically mocking God. And there's no reason to expect anything but swift judgment for these kinds of people. But instead of judgment, they seem to be prospering. And that's the confusion here. The prosperity of the wicked in verse 3. Their body is fat, verse 4. Their eye bulges from fatness, a sign of prosperity. 
In verse 5, it says they're not in trouble like, like other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. In verse 12, it says, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They've increased in wealth, health, wealth for the wicked, and pain and poverty for the righteous. Lord, it just doesn't seem to make sense. It's not fair. Not fair. What's up with that? Doesn't seem right. Like, God, are you watching? Are you paying attention here? It seems like the wicked are rewarded. But what about me? What about me? Verse 14. What does he say? What about me? For I have been stricken all day long. Here I am trying to do the right thing, and I'm stricken. But the turning point came in verse 17. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their what? Their end. It's all coming to an end. (laughs) Regardless of what the wicked gain for themselves, it will all surely come to an end. I perceive their end. This is a word for the final outcome, the after part. He was convinced as he came into the sanctuary that the wicked will have their day. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And that's true, isn't it? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. Proverbs 29, verse 1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken and that without remedy. For the unbeliever, the scripture says, what does it profit if a man gains the entire world and does what? Loses his soul. It, it, it does, it's not worth it in the end. You can gain the entire world, but if you lose your soul, it's not worth it. And it's so short-lived. Eternity is forever. This, this life is so short-lived. But people go after everything they can grab, what they can see, what they can taste, what they can feel. They grab after everything, and in the end, they end up losing it all anyway. We're blinded by the present, but there's so much more going on than what's in the present. And things are not always what they seem to be. Riches, power, scheming will only take you so far. And at first, Antiochus appears to be successful back in Daniel chapter 11. He appears to be successful for a while. Verse 25, it says he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. In 169 B.C., Antiochus gathered his forces against Egypt, and he was successful, defeated Egypt near Gaza, seized a fortress near the Egyptian border, moved closer to the capital in Alexandria. Egypt tried to stand against them, but they couldn't stand. There were internal problems in Egypt at the same time. Schemes were being devised against Ptolemy the, the sixth, the king of the south. Egyptian advisors undermined his role as the king, and even those who ate food at his table were against him. Verse 26, it says, those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. This is talking about the king of the Egypt. He's he's eating choice food with those who are wishing his harm. So what happens? Both kings sit down. Let's sit down and talk about this, right? That's what happens when you feel like you can't win. You sit down and you have a conversation, right? Verse 27, as for both kings, their heart will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. There's an end coming. That's That's what I'm talking about here. There's an end that's coming. 
And even though they're sitting down and they're devising these schemes, in the end it won't work. It's not appointed for it to work. And we don't know the details of this meeting, but we do know that the leaders of these countries exchange lies with one another, and not much has changed today, has it? <laughs> our, our leaders still exchange lies, bring their corrupt hearts right into the office with them, and whatever their character was before they got into office is only amplified after they get into office. And that's one of the reasons we need to pray for those who are in authority, right? First Timothy 2.1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It's like, just leave us alone, you know? You know, I'm praying that we can just live a tranquil and quiet life and then also for their salvation before God who desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But here you have Antiochus IV. He's sitting down at this meeting, intent on evil, and uh, he receives from Egypt. Look at verse 28. So he's plundering from Egypt. Then he will return to his land with much plunder. Much plunder. But obviously it, it wasn't enough. Why? His heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. What's that talking about? Antiochus left Egypt with much riches, much plunder, many riches according to verse 28, but somehow it wasn't enough. And on his way back, as he's going back to Syria, he has to pass through what again? Israel, passes through Israel on the way up. And he stops by the holy city and sets his heart against them and tries to satisfy his greed. Didn't get enough from Egypt, so I'll get the rest from you. And Jewish history records what happens. It says that he went up against Israel, came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary, took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, all of its utensils. He took the table for the bread of presents, the cups for the drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off he took the silver and the gold, the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Completely unprovoked, Antiochus moves in against the people of God and believed himself to be totally untouchable. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary to try to satisfy his greedy desires. But when you're greedy, your heart will never be satisfied with what you get, right? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor will he who loves abundance with his income. This too is vanity. Luke 12, 15 says, Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It was never enough for Antiochus. And if that's you, it'll never be enough for you. It'll never be enough. Because your heart was not meant to be satisfied with riches. Your heart was meant to be satisfied with God. We look to him. But here Antiochus is looking to satisfy and fill his heart with the riches of the world. More is never enough. We see it again in verse 29. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time, again, <laughs> so, so here he is, having acquired all this wealth and plundering all these riches and plundering from Jerusalem, he comes back to the south again. It's, it's never enough. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. Why? Because according to God's clock, it's coming to an end. It all comes to an end eventually. And this is his appointed time. Your, 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 your time's on the calendar. 
There's coming a time for you when it will come to an end. And here it is for Antiochus. His, his, his clock kept ticking, and finally it's come to the close. He comes down to Egypt again, back down to the south, but he's not going to be successful the way that he was before. Look at verse 30. For ships of Katim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return. Katim is a, a word that often means Cyprus, but in Jewish literature it was used for the coastlands in general and sometimes for Rome specifically. And here it's used for Rome. And what happened was in 168 BC, there was a Roman general named Gaius Populius Lanus who met Antiochus on his way down to Egypt with a Roman fleet and told him that if he didn't want to be an enemy of Rome, he needed to turn back and head home. Antiochus asked for more time to think about it. And the Roman general said, fine, you can think about it. And then took his sword and drew a circle right around Antiochus and said, uh, you can take your time, but make your decision before you leave out of the circle. <laughs> make your decision. So Antiochus knew that he was outmatched, returned home, defeated, embarrassed in front of his army. He's embarrassed, frustrated. And apparently back in Jerusalem, there was a, a rumor that the, the Romans had came up to Antiochus and that he was put to death. So there was a celebration that was happening on the streets of Jerusalem. And Antiochus saw it as a rebellion. He's already upset and frustrated, so now he takes out his anger on who? On Jerusalem, on the people of God. And he came against Jerusalem with a vengeance. Look at verse 29. It says, it will not turn out the way it did for him before. Ships of Katim will come against him. Verse 30, he'll be disheartened, will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And that's exactly what happened. He came with a vengeance, enraged against the Holy Covenant and showed favor for those who turned away from it. One ancient history reports it this way. He thought that Judea was in a revolt and raging like a wild animal. He set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants, in the space of three days, listen to this, 80,000 were lost. 80,000 people. 40,000 of those meeting a violent death. And the same number being sold into slavery. He ordered that a soldier stay behind to put down any attempts at a rebellion. And then in December of 167 BC, he went even further and ordered that a religious persecution take place. Verse 31 of Daniel 11 says, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. December of 167 BC, at the great altar of burnt offering, a pagan altar was built, and for the first time, a pig was sacrificed upon it, and they stuffed the pork down the throat of the priests, and it was called the abomination of desolation. It was a sacrifice to Zeus, Temple God was, uh, the temple of, of God was dedicated to Jupiter, another name for Zeus, and the Jews were compelled to participate in the festival and march in the procession. And throughout the whole land, Judaism was being rooted out of Jerusalem. Worship of Greek gods was introduced. The observance of Sabbath and circumcision was punishable by death. All sacrifices were to be offered on pagan altars to pagan deities. In the towns of Judah, they built pagan altars at the doors of their houses and 
offered illicit sacrifices. If anybody had a copy of the Torah or a child that was circumcised, he was to be put to death. Whatever scrolls of the Torah they found, they were to be tore up and burned. Whoever was found with the copy of the covenant in his possession or showed love for the Torah was put to death. And I know I've mentioned this before, but women who had their sons circumcised, their sons were put to death, and their dead children were hung around their necks. They're forced to walk around with their dead babies hanging around like a necklace. They executed their husbands in their presence. And many of the Jewish people were convinced to cave in and abandon their religion. Verse 32, it says, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Whoever would cave in, they were safe. Whoever stood firm, they were put to death. And by smooth words, like if you come over here, there will be safety. By his smooth words, many were convinced to turn against the covenant. Verse 32, the end of verse 32, it says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And if you're wondering what are, what, what, what's going on with the people of God during this time, this, this is where they were right here. <laughs> this is where they were. Those who know their God display strength and take action. If you want to know what the people of God are called to do during times of oppression, it's not our responsibility to wrestle influence through riches, power, scheming, wickedness. What we're called to do is to resist wickedness and fight for purity. That's what we're called to do. We're to fight for righteousness. The battle is for purity and righteousness. I'm to stand righteous in the face of oppression. That's our fight, believers. That's our fight. Purity. We fight for purity. We don't fight for control of the nation. You know, that we need to be in charge. We fight for our own purity. We pray for the, the, those who are in leadership so that we can lead a quiet and tranquil life. I just want to honor God. Like, that's what I want to do. I'm not here to take over anything. I just want to honor my Lord until he comes back. And he's coming back. But I, I, my, my fight is for purity. And that's what happened here. The people of God fought for their purity. That's our fight. And that's the people who know their God. And there's a fascinating history behind this. There was a, a priest named Mattathias, the father of Judas Maccabeus, who lived in the village of Modiin. And when Antiochus's officials came to Modiin to force the villagers to commit apostasy and sacrifice on a pagan altar, Mattathias resisted. And again, Jewish history in the book of Maccabees describes the scene and the words of Mattathias. Listen to what he said. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modiin, according to the king's command. And when Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officers who was forcing them to sacrifice. And he tore down the altar, thus he burned with zeal for the law of God. And he said, though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and fall every one of them from the religion of their fathers and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brothers walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the ordinances. And that began what was known as the Maccabean Revolt, which was a long and bloody feud that lasted for years. We don't have the time to walk through all the history here, but it's a fascinating story. Mattathias and his sons launched a, a warfare against the Seleucids. 
They destroyed pagan altars. They circumcised as many children as they found. They attacked those who worshiped false gods. And again, the fight here was for purity and worship and devotion to God. That's what the righteous fight for. In verse 33, it says, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. There are are those among the, the Jewish people who had insight, understood what the battle was really about. And they tried to give understanding to the many. They were known as the, the Hasidim, you know, those who were faithful to the Torah, the Hasidim. Hasidim is from a word related to uh, piety, religious devotion. You know, if you've heard of the word Hasidic, you know, the Hasidic Jews today, it actually comes from the same word. It's from the, the word about, that refers to piety, religious devotion. And during this time, they taught the Jewish people that the fight wasn't about conquering a kingdom or building a kingdom on earth. It was about fighting for purity and refusing to bow down to the foreign gods. And many of them paid for this with their lives. At the end of verse 33, it says, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. And I guess this is a good time to just stop and ask you a question. What, what are you willing to bow the knee for? What are you willing to give up your devotion to God for? Would, would you take the sword and the flame and captivity and plunder for many days in order to be devoted to your God? Or would you give up your devotion to God because somebody's offended because you took a stand? Is that what you're willing to give up your devotion to God for? Somebody's offended. I'm not going to be included if I stand up for the Lord in this case. Maybe there's a promise of advancement, you know, maybe socially, financially, there's a promise of advance. If you just kind of pipe down and keep that devotion quiet, you know, just give in. You know, maybe there's some kind of promise of advancing. Or maybe you'd give up your devotion to God because you enjoy the sinful pleasures of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the the pride of life. Will you give up your devotion to the Lord for that? But the people who know their God, they fight for purity. Fight for purity. Are you willing to fight for purity in your life? Not everybody who joined the Jewish movement was in it for purity. Some joined the movement out of hypocrisy, insincerity. They were just in it for the fight. Verse 34 talks about that. It says, uh, now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join them in hypocrisy. These, these are the people who join not because they're really concerned about righteousness. They're, they're just in it because they want freedom. You know, we want freedom from uh, the Seleucids. We're not really interested in, uh, you know, that religious stuff. We, we just want to be free. I remember uh, up in Canada, James Coates, when he kept his church open during the lockdowns, there were some people that started flooding the church, not because they cared about, you know, the gospel and the churches being open. They just, they just wanted freedom from Canada, freedom from the government. Yeah, rebellion, we're here for that. We're down for that. Cared nothing about the worship of God. Everybody who joins us isn't necessarily part of us, right? There's people who join up and link up, but they just, they just want freedom, freedom from everything. But here it is, they, they receive help from these people, a little help. There are people who come with flattery, hypocrisy, but whatever little help they offer didn't stop the righteous from falling in battle. Look at verse 35. It says, some of those who have insight will fall, they still fall, in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So what was the effect of the persecution during this time? Some of those who have insight will fall, 
People would die. Those would, there would be those that would lose their lives. But what would also happen? There would also be the people that would be refined and purged and made pure until the end of time. And the effect of the persecution was the purity. And that's what the fight was about anyway, wasn't it? It was all about the purity. Under oppression, affliction, God's people are purified. And the same thing happens today. Even under affliction and persecution, God's people are still purified today. Those that know their God. Those that know what we fight for. And that's the way that it will be until the end of time. Even though there will be periods of relief and the the way that the battle is fought will change. Hopefully nobody's out here killing anybody because they see him offering up a false sacrifice. That shouldn't be you. That's not what we're called to do. But the battle for purity for us, for the church, is still real. And it's still fierce. And it's still ongoing. But the battle is for purity, not property. We're not fighting for this country. We have a different kind of kingdom that we're fighting for, right? We have a different kind of kingdom. And we have a different kind of king. For what do the people of God fight for today? With what do the people of God fight today? With whom do the people of God fight against today? And if we were to win some kind of war, what would we do after we won? (laughs) What does the Bible say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're to put on the armor of God. We're not to put on the armor of, of steel and metal to, to go out there and swing a sword around. That's not what we do. John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is not the battle that we fight for. We're not fighting for this country or whatever else. That's not what we do. And our battle plan as the people of God is pretty clear. Wouldn't you say? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make what? Disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. All the way to the end, there's going to be conflict. And all the way to the end, who's with us? Jesus is with us to fulfill his commission. And we don't have the time to go through all the history here, but following this rebellion, there was a short time of reprieve. Mattathias and his sons continued to struggle for purity. They rebelled against the government's control over their worship. Mattathias was already an old man and died within a few months of the battle, but his third son, Judas, became the leader of the rebellion after his father died, and his name was Judas, but they called him Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And he's described like a lion roaring for his prey. And under his leadership, the Jewish rebellion defeated the army of Antiochus, reclaimed the Jewish temple in what's known as the Maccabean War. The temple was cleansed, the defiled altar was torn down, and on December of 164 BC, a new altar was built, and a burnt offering was sacrificed on it, according to the Torah, and the altar was dedicated with the sound of singing and the music of harps and lyres and cymbals, and they celebrated the Feast of Dedication. Dedication, or Hanukkah. For eight days. Why eight days? It was said that when the Jewish fighters entered the sanctuary, that the sanctuary was in shambles, torn apart by the Seleucids, and Jewish people found only enough oil to light a lantern for one day, but the oil for one day lasted a full eight days. 
So Judas Maccabees and his brothers decreed that the days of dedication of the altar should be observed annually for eight days. And this is the celebration of joy and gladness. And it was to begin on the 25th of the month of Kislev, which is our December. And we know the celebration today as Hanukkah, which means dedication. And the Jewish people have celebrated this occasion ever since. And when Jewish people today light the eight candles you know, of Hanukkah, it's to commemorate the faithfulness of God during this time. Real quick, flip over, to the, flip over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. Take a look at verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication, and what is dedication? Hanukkah, the feast of Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and who was there? And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Here you have Jesus showing up for the celebration of, of Hanukkah, celebrating the deliverance from Antiochus. And whatever did happen to Antiochus, I don't know if we finish the story. What did happen to Antiochus? When history records the death of Antiochus, a messenger reached him in Persia with the news that his armies, had, which had marched into the land of Judah, had been routed, that the Jews had destroyed the abomination which he built upon the altar in Jerusalem, they had surrounded the temple and the king heard this news. He was thunderstruck and so deeply dismayed that he took to his bed, sank into melancholy because his plots had been foiled. And there he lay for many days as his great distress grew worse. Finally, he realized he was dying. He summoned all of his friends and said to them, sleep has fled from my eyes and the weight of anxiety has broken my heart. I have said to myself how deep I have sunk in distress. How great is the tempest which has now come upon me. I have come to understand that because of these deeds of these evils have come upon me as I die in great agony on foreign soil. And he died. Proverbs 27, 24 says, riches are not forever nor does a crown endure to all generations. Eventually, it all comes to an end, right? All comes to an end. Antiochus was broken without human agency and became an illustration of a future world leader who will also be broken. This abomination of desolation that took place during Antiochus' time is an illustration of what will take place in a later time. Because there's another abomination that is still to come. And we'll get to that next time <laughs> we get back to Daniel. But this brings us to an important observation to make. And if you want to know how do we apply this, what do we walk away with, here it is, okay? If you don't get anything else. God wins, okay? <laughs> God wins. And everybody else will be brought down. All the kingdoms, all the kings, all the other authorities, you will all be brought down. And the the response should be to bow the knee now to the true king. Bow the knee now to the true king before he comes. There's, there's an opportunity for peace to be made between you and God, but peace only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the application for us. Bow the knee now to the true king. And righteousness will triumph over wickedness. And it doesn't matter how evil and out of control the world seems to be. It doesn't matter how wicked the wickedness is that the Lord, the commander of hosts, has greater power than he who is in the world. And you can't look at this text as merely a battle between the Seleucids and Jerusalem or a battle between Antiochus and the Maccabees or a battle between the armies of righteousness and the armies of wickedness. Behind all of that, there's a much greater battle going on between God and Satan, right? Simultaneous to what we can see, 
There's another battle that's raging, and Daniel was able to peel back the curtain for a little bit to say, like, no, there's angels that are warring back here. There's a much greater battle that's going on. And whose power was Antiochus operating in? in the power of Satan. The power that energized him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 24, it says that his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and perform his will. That was by the power of Satan. Satanic wickedness. But God will win, and he's proven himself over and over and over again. Are you on the right side? You know, people always talk about being on the right side of history. How about being on the right side of eternal history? (laughs) Why don't you be on the right side of that for once? Like there's a king who will win. Be on the right side of that history. God has proven himself over and over and over again. And there's coming a time after this future abomination of desolation that the Son of Man will appear. Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's coming back. And that gives us confidence today that as we serve Christ, that even though on the surface we may look defenseless, like we're frustrated, without a hope, the Lord of hosts is with us. And we're on his side. And Jesus says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that may seem like a dangerous place to be, but do you recognize who's given you that command? It's the shepherd. The shepherd is with us. So we don't have to fear the world around us. There's an inheritance for the people of God. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And we do have a king, but he's not like the kings of this earth. And there will be a kingdom to come, but the purified, those who are righteous will enter into it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Matthew 5, 8. And God has designed these times for our refinement, our purging, our purification, And for Israel, it will eventually lead to their salvation. That's what these times are designed for. And righteousness is your influence. That's your influence, righteousness. It's not scheming, wickedness, power, riches. That's not your influence. Your influence is righteousness. Be the people of righteousness. Do you know your God? Are you the kind of people who will be influenced by smooth words and promises by the world around you? Or are you the kind of people who display strength and take action because you trust in your God. That's the kind of people we're called to be. I'll, I'll end with this story. The story is told of a mother who was arrested with her seven sons under Antiochus Epiphanes, who tried to force them to break the law. And one of the brothers said on behalf of the rest of his brothers, even if we're all to die, we will not break the law. The angry king ordered to heat up the pans and cauldrons, and he ordered the first brother to have his tongue cut off the skin removed from his head and the ends of his limbs cut off. And all this was happening in front of the rest of the brothers and the mother, who in the meantime encouraged each other to resist the tormentor's demands. Each of the seven brothers endured the same torture. The torment of the sons was watched by their mother, who watched her seven sons die in the space of a single day. Yet she bore it bravely because she put her trust in the Lord. Each of the sons made a speech as he died, and the last one of the brothers said, Under God's covenant, we are dead under God's covenant of everlasting life. We may die now, but we're under the covenant of everlasting life. And lastly, the mother died. My question for you is, do you have a a hope in the eternal covenant? Everlasting life, is that where your hope is? Because if it is, 
you'll be able to stand strong. You'll be able to display strength and take action. You'll trust in your God and you won't give yourself over to all the schemes and connivings of the world around you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we're just grateful for your word. Our Father, we thank you for this text, Lord, just such a, a powerful text, so much that's included here, and there's so much application for the people of God even today. Our Father, we are a people who are often discouraged and frightened and frustrated by the world around us, and my Father, I just pray that you would remind us that you've overcome the world. And that those who trust in you are considered overcomers. We are overcomers because of our faith. Remind us of these things, Lord. That even if we were to give our lives for the sake of righteousness, that it's worth it. Because the kingdom to come is a kingdom of righteousness. And the king that we serve is a king of righteousness. And it's worth it to suffer for righteousness' sake. Even if we're persecuted, it's worth it to suffer for righteousness' sake. So, Father, I pray that we would take up the cause of Christ my Father, that we would be bold as lions, uh, that we would embrace the, the command that we have, Lord, the, the battle charge that we have of bringing the gospel to all the nations, making disciples of the world because our King is with us. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, we have nothing to fear because we have the shepherd who walks with the sheep. My Father, what a, what a glorious promise we have. What a glorious word we have. What a glorious Savior we have. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.